This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, let's talk about what the federal government is doing. And and by the way, I've heard from numerous people about how seamless the Canada Emergency Response Benefit Program is. And and that's amazing. I mean, that deserves some recognition. Federal civil servants built that whole system in just a couple of weeks. It is processing claims like crazy. It is working. And big shout out to federal civil servants out there for all the work that they have been doing to make sure Canadians get money uh, as fast as they possibly can. Uh, Another note, also today from the federal government, in just a few minutes, officials are going to be holding a technical briefing on COVID-19 data modeling. For more on that, we're joined now by David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent in Ottawa. Good morning, David. Morning, Simi. Yeah, and, and you know that shout out to civil servants. Good point. But also, it's worth noting that the organizations sending out and processing these these CERB uh, checks, CERBs, it's the Canada Revenue Agency. And what are they normally doing at this time of the year? Well, they're taking in 15 million tax returns and sending in about 10 million checks. So for them, it's kind of like, well, this is a day in the yeah. office. It's just a different kind of check. But it is amazing that it's gone so yeah. well. It's terrific. I've been reading about it and how they just grabbed people from different departments, right, that had slowdowns, like from Passport Canada, and just put them all to work. So I, I, they really do. They did an amazing job. Uh, but you've got a, me- a media briefing coming up today. I'm sure you're going to be covering this as well. What's going on with this briefing? Well, this is something that uh, the the Prime Minister has been pressed to provide for a couple of weeks now, which is a best-case, worst-case scenario in terms of uh, infection rates across the country, deaths that we're going to see from this across the country. And, of course, the whole point of this is having these, these two scenarios is it helps politicians make the case and presumably helps uh, us, uh, citizens, understand the rationale for why we're taking the measures we're taking, why we're making the sacrifices we're making. We just saw the latest job numbers from, uh, from um, uh, Statistics Canada out for just the third week in March, just one week alone. You know, a million Canadians, surprise, yeah. surprise, uh, were out of work, and the unemployment rate shot up from 5.5% to nearly 8%. Um, so why are we making all these sacrifices? Well, we have these models that say if we don't make these sacrifices, you know, we're looking at tens and hundreds of thousands of more people dying. We make these, continue to make these sacrifices, we have X number of people dying. We do more, we'll have fewer people dying. And I, I don't know there's going to be anything revelatory in the actual numbers from the federal model because we've seen B.C. provide these numbers. We've seen Alberta provide these numbers, Ontario and Quebec. So, I mean, our four biggest provinces have already provided their best-case, worst-case scenarios and have told their populations about it, and, and they're grim numbers. I mean, uh, uh, I just because Alberta's in my head because they released mm-hmm. theirs two days ago. Alberta's got something like 27 deaths right now. And in the current scenario, they're looking at 6,600 by the end of the summer, 27 Ooh. to 6,600. And everybody wants to see if we can, that, that's not a foregone conclusion. We want to try and bring that number down. And so there may be additional measures that everybody's going to have to take to prevent more people from dying. And that's what these models are really all about. Right. One of the criticisms I know that the B.C. government has actually had of the federal government is uh, monitoring people who are arriving from international destinations. Is that something the federal government is ever going to talk about? Uh, we've asked the Prime Minister about this, and I can tell you that people at uh, Premier Horgan's cabinet table have not been impressed with what the Prime Minister has said. But yesterday, I think the country took notice of what Premier Horgan announced, which is, you probably heard, yep. uh, is that if you're, a, if you're coming across a border into B.C., land crossing or at an airport, 
you're going to get a form. It's a B.C. government form, and it's on that form you're going to spell out what your plan is to self-isolate for 14 days. And if the government official looks at your plan and doesn't like it, they'll give you a plan. And this is a plan, if you fail, if you break any of this, it's like a contract. If you break your covenant, uh, you can be prosecuted. So Premier Horgan's, uh, like a lot of premiers, wants to see uh, a little little more attention paid to our border crossings, more attention paid to assess the health of incoming travelers, and then more attention paid to making sure those travelers do what they're told to do, which is to isolate for 14 days. You may have seen... Uh, on the other end of the country, uh, Premier McNeil in, in Nova Scotia, you know, he had this viral clip, a down-home East Coast kind of saying, stay the blazes home is what he's been trying yeah. to put out there. And uh, and that's, I mean, John Horgan has the same message in slightly different language. So Canada couldn't enforce this, I understand. Were officials warning Canada about this early on? They were, and we, we Global News got a hold of some uh, thousands of pages of documents that the House of Commons Health, Health Committee uh, looked at this week. And among those was a memo written in, in January from Health Canada saying, you know, wait a minute, thousands of people are arriving, thousands of people arriving from China, from the province in China, Hubei province, where this originated. And we don't know where they're going. We don't have the ability to process them. We, we're overwhelmed here. That was January that the warning went out. Of course, since then, we've obviously seen the border tighten up. But yes, it looks like there were early warning signs to do something. Again, Prime Minister Trudeau get asked about this yesterday, and his point was the government followed the best advice of its scientists at the time and continues to do so. And, yes, there's going to be lots of time down the road for looking back and figuring out what uh, we could have done better, um, and that's certainly one of them. But I guess right now is premiers, Horgan and Kenny, next door in Alberta, are both saying let's, let's pay more attention now to what's coming across the border. Yes, let's. All right, David, thank you. Okay, thanks, Amy. Cheers. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, we like to hear some of those good stories out there too, right? And there are still some good stories. We might have to look a little bit harder for them, dig a little bit deeper, but they are out there. For instance, let's talk about volunteers. There are so many of them all over our great province working tirelessly to make sure that people are still provided for during the pandemic, especially BC's most vulnerable people. Physical distancing and important safety measures can make it, you know, difficult to connect with those most in need. And you don't want people to be forgotten during this time. And there are many groups out there who are still trying their best to make sure nobody is forgotten, including Guru Nanak's Free Kitchen. Uh, Raman Kara is their volunteer coordinator, and he spoke with our Nikki Reitmeyer. For some people, I know the answer is going to be very obvious. For others, though, uh, we're going to learn something new. So can you start by first telling me, who is Guru Nanak? Uh, yeah, no, good question. Um, so Guru Nanak is uh, the first guru in the Sikh religion. He was a trailblazer, prophet, teacher of culture and religion. So he sort of began this concept and idea of uh, bringing equality. And that's the whole idea with our meals, which we refer to as langar, which is our blessed meal. And idea was that everyone in the face of God is equal and has a right to a meal, whether it be street-ridden or high class, right? And he wanted to bring those different classes on one level of equality. So we sort of just try to practice that instead of, as opposed to preaching it. So that's our first guru. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of history with Guru Nanak um, and what he's done and what, what he's accomplished. But uh, Guru Nanak's Free Kitchen started in 2006 and is a group of like-minded individuals 
that had the idea of trying to bring, again, langar, our meal that's uh, prepared at our Gudwaras, to the downtown Eastside community specifically. The idea was just bringing a meal to them and sort of engaging, connecting with that community and better understanding it, providing support, and then bringing volunteers into it and having them, giving them the first-hand experience and uh, connection with that community. And to date, you've provided like thousands and thousands of meals to downtown Eastside residents. Yes, absolutely. We have, we've started our second weekly event. So for the last, I want to say about six years, we were doing every Sunday. So we'd uh, set up a tent and tables on the corner of Main and Hastings. And we'd serve close to, if not more than 500 plates. So now we have a Saturday event as well. But I imagine that must have changed because of COVID-19. With this current pandemic, what kind of challenges has that presented for Guru Nanak's Free Kitchen? Well, it created a big challenge, a huge challenge, actually, with the whole idea of uh, social distancing, right? Physical distancing, where our organization and sort of our sort of method is to try to encourage volunteers to engage one-on-one with the downtown Eastside community. So now with the virus and the social distancing, We've unfortunately had to scrap the Sunday event and the Saturday event. However, still having volunteers come to us saying, how can we help? What else can we do? We've collaborated with other organizations and we've tried to be creative in how we can provide that support. So now what, we've, uh, what we're doing, one of the projects we're doing is we're collecting donations and then we're buying ingredients for meals from wholesalers and then we're uh, donating it to the Gutwara so they can prepare the meals and then we uh, go and uh, drop it off at seniors, individuals dealing with the domestic violence, anyone that is essentially in need of that support. So we have an online form set up, they submit and then we uh, connect with them and see how we can support them. So still providing meals, just sort of changing clientele a little bit in order to ensure social distancing. Yes, absolutely. For the time being, yes, right? But we are still talking with other organizations in the downtown east side, donating to them. There's an initiative with uh, Oppenheimer Park right now, so we've donated soap and uh, snacks and water to them and various other organizations that are in downtown east side that are still operating on a limited basis, but we're still trying to provide them support as much as we can. Oh, that is some good work there. That is Raman Kara, volunteer coordinator with Guru Nanak's Free Kitchen. You can find their website online, gnfk.org. They're also on social media. Uh, Guru Nanak's Free Kitchen is a Sikh faith-led organization, and we're applauding the work that they are doing during the month of April, and this happens to also be BC Sikh History Month. So if you know of any other volunteer groups out there that you think deserve some recognition, let us know. Email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, as if being a police officer and a first responder isn't hard enough, now there are morons out there that are making it even worse with this COVID-19 pandemic. Check out this bizarre story from Coquitlam. So RCMP in Coquitlam arrested a man who was breaking into a home where there were two seniors inside. And so they arrested him. During the arrest, police asked if he had been showing any symptoms of being ill, to which the man said, yes. So he was told to face away from the officers. But what did he do instead? No, no, he turned and then coughed directly and deliberately into their faces. Now, in Vancouver, the chief Adam Palmer here has said on social media that a similar thing has happened not once, but twice to Vancouver Police Department officers. 
So what is the repercussions for something like this happening? Joining us now is the media spokesperson for the VPD, Sergeant Aaron Rhodes. Sergeant Rhodes, thank you for being here. Oh, thanks for having me, Simma. So not once, but twice. Uh, what happens to people who do something dumb like this? Well, if they are intentionally doing it in the attempts to hurt somebody and knowingly that they may have COVID, or even if they don't, it would be a charge of aggravated assault. And that's what we would be putting through to Crown. And is that being pursued in these two cases that happened that the chief talked about? That was pursued in each case. Uh, they were charged with um, uh, assault and not aggravated assault. Uh, but, but that does reflect that this is a very serious in, uh, situation. So this seems like such a bizarre and dumb thing for people to do. Uh, what kind of response do officers have to this? It must be traumatizing for them. Well, Vancouver Police, we will be arresting people who think that they can use this pandemic as a means to assist them in their criminal activity. Uh, We will be charging you. Uh, Don't think that you stating that you have COVID-19 and using that to possibly assault another person, uh, that we're not going to do anything about it. We are going to be stepping up our resources to assist in fighting this pandemic, and we don't want to see people taking advantage of these uh, situations during these unprecedented times. In what ways will the department be stepping up its resources? Uh, Well, we're using our analytical uh, capabilities, uh, looking at what changes in crime that we are seeing, uh, deploying our resources uh, in those areas. Uh, Across the board, we have seen a drop in calls for service um, within the city of Vancouver. We have seen an increase in commercial break break and enters. So we're focusing a lot uh, of our officers on that situation to assist the retail businesses around the city. Can you tell us how much of a drop you're seeing in calls out there? Like, is it substantial? Uh, it, it is it is a higher number. I don't have the exact figures on me right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's approximately about 18%. We're seeing a little bit lower right now, uh, which people are noticing. You know, there's not as many people out there. Uh, traffic's down. So, so the numbers are, are going to be a little bit lower. Okay. So when you talk about redeploying then to more commercial break-ins, are there certain areas, though, that you have noticed perhaps an increase that need attention? Uh, we have noticed that the Kitsilano area, as well as uh, Definitely in downtown Vancouver, uh, you are seeing businesses which have been boarded up. Uh, they are doing their part to help prevent this. Uh, from the business perspective, our officers, uh, we are visible. We have, we have task force who are in place to target these thieves who are going after these businesses. So was that a recommendation then that you would have for these businesses is to be more proactive about protecting their property? Well, they, they can do a lot of things, uh, move merchandise away from the front windows, uh, stop the sight lines so that they can see anything if uh, economically feasible, uh, have security in the area, uh, increased outdoor lighting. They can do what they can. And from a police perspective, we are doing what we can uh, to go after these thieves who are targeting these businesses. We know in other jurisdictions, Sergeant Road, police have been kind of ticketing for violating those public health rules. Is there any thought to doing that in Vancouver? Uh, at this point, we haven't given any tickets for social distancing. Uh, is that what you mean, but for the social yeah, distancing? Yeah. So we haven't given any tickets for that. We are proactively educating people on the safety concerns uh, for themselves, but for everybody in the area. Uh, you're not just affecting yourself. This is having a uh, snowball effect across our entire country. So we are letting people know, maintain social distancing. This is something that... Um, the province is uh, mandating and giving a lot of information regarding, and we are continuing that response with the people of the city of Vancouver. Okay, so your message then today is definitely to people out there who think they can use this to take advantage somehow. Uh, in the criminal aspect, we have seen that. Uh, we, Chief Palmer did tweet out those two situations um, where our officers were uh, spit on or coughed on. 
Uh, we don't want to see this happening, uh, but know that we will be arresting you uh, for aggravated assault, and you will be going to jail for that. All right, Sergeant Rowe, thanks for your time. Uh, thanks for having me. Good luck. Sergeant Aaron Rode, media spokesperson for the Vancouver Police Department. Uh, as you heard there, yeah, some dumb people do think that's, I don't know, if they think it's funny or if they think they're, you know, doing something. They're going to get charged with assault on a police officer, by the way, uh, in these two cases of the VPD having this happen to them. We also heard about the Coquitlam RCMP one as well. Uh, if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's break down some of those numbers that we've been hearing about this morning, and they are not good. National unemployment now standing at 7.8%. It went up something like 2.2% in the span of one month, something that is unprecedented. So to analyze some of the data that was released this morning, we're joined now by Kevin Milligan, Associate Professor of Economics at UBC. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So we knew that the numbers were going to be quite stark and bad, how how did that live up to what you were expecting? Yeah, this is um, uh, an unprecedented release of a labor force survey. And I'm afraid to say that this is just the beginning of what we're going to see, because this labor force survey reflects what was going on in the economy in mid-March. And the exact week that this survey was in the field was actually March break here in B.C. and many other places around the country. And so, you know, there's a bunch of weirdness in this thing because some people were on vacation that week, but also that was the week when we started to see restaurants shutting down and started to see the economy go into shutdown, but we weren't fully into shutdown yet. So to see that absolutely full picture like we've had over the last couple of weeks, we're going to have to wait until the April report. So you think those numbers will get worse I think they do, and it's an indication of that is over the past week with the new Canada Emergency Response Benefit, we've seen upwards of 5 million Canadians claim that. So what we saw today in the labor force survey is about 1 million Canadians fewer working in March than in uh, February, but what we're going to see in April is that number is going to be closer to what we see with the Canada Emergency Relief Benefit, which is 5 million. Ooh, okay, so what, when you break down the data then, where were the job losses the worst? What, what province or what area is getting hit particularly hard? There's a, a couple of areas that really jump out, and you know, they're kind of natural when we think about the way that the economy shut down. The biggest uh, industries that were hit were accommodation and food services, so that's your restaurants and your hotels, and then next was wholesale, uh, wholesale and retail trade, so that's your, your malls and your shopping. And you think about that, you think about what kind of folks work there. That's a lot of younger people, people who are starting out in the labor market, and that's exactly what we see. This uh, uh, change in the labor force has hit the youngest, hardest, by far not even close. Boy, what a different reality, though, for that particular age group, isn't it, Kevin? Because the last, like, five years, all we've talked about is how there's a labor shortage. There's not enough people. Yeah, it is uh, a very big difference from the conversations we were having about our economy just a few weeks ago. Now, not to be, um, you know, uh, to take an even keel on this, a lot of these folks, the people who are on the emergency response benefit and the people in, you know, these industries, these are jobs that will hopefully bounce back pretty easily when we get to a place where we are delayering our social distancing in a few weeks, a few months, whenever it's going to be, um, you know, people are going to want to go out and eat. People are going to want to uh, stay in a hotel. So some of these jobs will bounce back fairly quickly. Uh, more worrying will be if and when we see these trends, you know, flow through the rest of the economy 
and in places that will be harder to start back up. In what areas do you think? Like what? Oh, this would be if you see, you know, core manufacturing, core, um, you know, uh, uh, forestry, business, uh, uh, transportation, those kinds of things. I mean, transportation would be a good thing, right? As we know right now, lots of trucks on the road still delivering our food and other things that we need. But if, you know, the re- this hit becomes a, a deep recession, then, you know, the movement of goods is going to decline. So watching something like transportation would be a good indicator of how deep the recession is going to eventually be and how hard it will be to dig out. As we see right now, there's not a lot of movement in transportation, as an example. Right. What about the wage subsidy program announced by the federal government? I mean, that's been encouraging businesses to keep workers on the payroll. We heard Air Canada say they're going to use it. WestJet's going to use it. Uh, Do you think that'll have an impact on the numbers? I think it will. This is, uh, when it is put in place, going to be a a big deal. This is a 75% wage subsidy. So that's covering three quarters of of the cost of a a worker for a firm. So we've seen some big employers like Air Canada and WestJet announce that they're going to scoop back up the workers that laid off a few weeks ago when the emergency uh, wage subsidy is put in place. And I imagine we'll see some other big employers do that as well. Now, part of the reason why uh, we haven't seen uh, broader participation in that yet is it hasn't passed through Parliament yet. They're hoping to meet next yeah. week. And then once it passes Parliament, they have to get the, you know, the web portal up and going and have applications and, and, and get those checks out to the businesses who need it to survive. Now, that sounds complicated, but I think we can take some good news from the emergency relief benefit for workers. We saw this week that it was fairly smooth in getting it run, uh, yeah. you know, into place. And, you know, there's some hope that maybe we can get that wage subsidy for businesses up and going within just a couple of weeks. Now, there's a lot of firms who are struggling today, who are struggling yesterday, and they need some action now. Um, but, you know, hopefully there are also some firms like Air Canada, like WestJet, who will take the opportunity of this big wage subsidy to keep their firms ready to go so that when we get to the other side of the health crisis, they can pick up and and start running. You know, Kevin, I was saying earlier that the stories that I look for right now are stories about businesses that are kind of pivoting, that are adapting, that are finding ways to keep their employees and do something different. What do you look for? Yeah, that's something that uh, I want to see as well, is that firms are not losing their attachment to their employees, because that's the kind of thing that allows them to pick up and run on the other side. So you see some of them, there was an announcement uh, today from Canada Goose that makes the the winter Mm -hmm. jackets, that they're going to be making some protective equipment for hospital workers. And we see that kind of pivoting into some different kinds of things. The other thing that we um, I hope to see is, you know, with the announcement yesterday of the Canada Student Jobs Program, there's going to be a 100% wage subsidy yeah. available for that. So when we get to you know, the, the summer, I expect to see a lot of firms um, and organizations being able to hire students to get people back into the labor force and get some money saved up for next year's school. Is there something else, Kevin, that you think the federal government should be doing? Like They're clearly throwing everything at it to see what sticks, but is there something else they could be doing? You know, what I I imagine is happening is that everyone's working very hard on very tight timelines to get stuff done. Um, And just putting all their effort into delivery. We have some programs designed, and, you know, they aren't perfect, and people are pointing out the problems with them. But I think the main thing is to get the checks into 
the hands of the people who need it. And with the emergency relief benefit, they've done a good job, I think, at that this week. And they really got to work on the business side now because on the other side of this crisis, we, we want our families to survive with some income, and we're, we're doing that okay. But we also need some places to work and some businesses that are thriving on the other side. And we need to see some action quickly there to get that done. All right, Kevin, thank you. Thank you. Kevin Milligan, Associate Professor of Economics at UBC, helping us to break down and analyze the uh, Canadian economy numbers that came out this morning, a record 1 million, do- 1 million jobs that have been lost in the month of March. Uh, we've never seen that many jobs lost in one month before since StatsCan started keeping these numbers in 1976. Unemployment now sitting at 7.8%. And as Kevin was saying, a lot of the layoffs actually happened after the week that StatsCan was examining. So the April numbers will likely be worse, depending on how successful this government's wage subsidy program is. Will it be enough of an incentive to get businesses to hire back workers? This is Mornings with Simi. So Health Minister Adrian Dix has just released a statement, and it's a statement that has been released in conjunction with the Health Minister of Alberta, Tyler Shandro. And so together, they have issued this joint statement regarding travel during this long weekend, this Easter weekend. And what it says is, Albertans and British Columbians have deep and historic ties. Many of us have family and friends on both sides of the border and enjoy visiting each other's provinces. A typical long weekend is something we look forward to throughout the year. It's a chance to spend a little extra time with our loved ones, often in gatherings or in trips out of town. So they both say this long weekend is different. These are extraordinary times. And they said we must all stay home, stay in our communities, and stay at a safe physical distance from others when outside. Let us be clear, they say, staying home means no traveling, especially across our borders. Instead, we encourage everyone to find ways to connect virtually this long weekend. So it goes on, the statement's a little bit longer than that, but essentially the two health ministers of BC and Alberta are saying, don't go back and forth across the BC and Alberta uh, border this weekend. They want you to stay home, preferably indoors as well. Don't be thinking about enjoying the great outdoors this weekend either. And you know what, for me, I am happy to stay indoors right now because this week my allergies really kicked into high gear. And this is not, as you can imagine, any time to be sneezing in public, Uh, not even sneezing at home, which I have been doing uh, over the last four or five days. And you know what? Even at home, people look at you like, are you okay? Is everything all right? Do you need to do the COVID assessment test? No, it's allergies. I know what allergies feel like, but I've never had to start taking medication in April before, and I haven't sneezed now in two days, but I've had to start taking medication much earlier than I normally would. So we thought, let's talk about this right now. We're joined by allergist Joanne Young to talk more about the situation. Uh, Good morning, Joanne. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Is this a particularly bad allergy season? It is in a way. It did start um, earlier because it was a very mild end to the winter. If you can remember the last couple of years, we had snow in February. Yet this year, we were right. expecting that there'd be a little bit more snowfall and that the uh, freezing line would be uh, lower. The freezing level would be lower. But um, in fact, that second wave never did come. So the trees woke up earlier. We've had actually high pollen counts for about five weeks. But depending on what you're allergic to, you may have felt it at a different time. 
And yes, it did sneak up on us um, starting in the last week of February, early March already. Oh, I really felt it. Like I normally wouldn't start taking anything until June, uh, but here I am. And I, I, I might have been able to fight this off, but this isn't a good time to be sneezing. Uh, do you find that people also are super sensitive to that right now? Any kind of sneezing or coughing or whatever, it might be allergy related, but everybody wants to make sure. Oh, yes, absolutely. So not only for people around the person who's sneezing or coughing, but even the person themselves, I've had patients start to question whether or not um, the symptoms are beginning of a virus versus their allergies. I've had uh, parents concerned about their kids. And so I think that part of the reason why people are noticing their symptoms earlier is because they may have felt the same way last year or the previous year but they are much more on high alert for what these symptoms mean. Oh, that is so true. So, so true. I'm paranoid about sneezing anywhere right now. Uh, what can we do, though, to mitigate? We're also home a lot more as well. I'm trying not to go outside to keep it right. all indoors, but what else can we do? Right. So um, I think the, ma- the first step is to try to distinguish whether or not these are symptoms of allergies versus um, an infection. And I think that you brought up the word sneezing about half a dozen times now, and that's exactly it. That itch is such a strong characteristic yes. of allergies. Itch of the eyes, itch of the nose, itch of the palate and the throat some people feel. And so that may be one of the features. I mean, clearly, we've all been well-versed now in what symptoms of a viral infection looks like. So there is um, the absence of a sore throat or full-body aches in uh, allergies, as well as um, even though there's the nickname hay fever, there is never a fever with seasonal allergies. So what you can do is um, there are a lot of options just um, in the pharmacy, in the aisles that you can access yourself without seeing a doctor. I would encourage you to try something like a long-acting or 24-hour antihistamine. Avoid the short-acting ones like Benadryl or also called diphenhydramine, the ones that make you sleepy because they don't work so well. They make you sleepy and they only last for half a day. Um, But also remember that if those first-line measures don't work, that even though we can't easily stop in at a walk-in clinic or call up your GP, a lot of um, primary care physicians are taking um, calls by telehealth, and so they are accessible in that way through video conference, whereas the traditional way of walking to a doctor's office uh, may not be as readily available right now. I wonder as well, as you touched on this, about people it being earlier And maybe people are a little bit more paranoid because they're like, well, this isn't normally when I have my allergies. That's right. So just being uh, hypervigilant, which is sort of our way of saying that you're on kind of high alert of uh, early, early symptoms. Sometimes these symptoms are barely noticeable and just would blend into your day. But now any respiratory symptom is picked up by the person. So that is probably the reason. March, April, they are certainly characteristically allergy seasons. Depending on your uh, what you're allergic to in the air, some things peak in May and June, which is, I think, what you're describing, that yeah. you usually feel it most in May and June. But, you know, it's also possible that uh, your symptoms might rev up over the next two months or so, unfortunately. Oh, well, thank you so much for that. I feel so much better. <laughs> uh, but this is, uh, I guess, what I'm hearing here as well is it's more important than ever to make sure we're not touching our faces because that's how you also spread your allergens around. Yes, that's right. I mean, staying at home and being um, in an environment that you're familiar with, that's probably a little bit less important. Yes, we want to wash our hands before we touch our family members and prepare foods and after going to the washroom. But 
if you are needing that good eye rub and you've been at home all day, then you're probably safe to do so. And so that is really the key. We have, I've had um, patients report to me that, in fact, this, this season has been easier than previous seasons because probably in the kids, they are not going to school. They're not going out for recess. They're not going out for lunch. And overall, they just have way less outdoor time. On the other hand, I mean, you've been very compliant with staying at home, but I do think that this unseasonably uh, warm weather and mm-hmm. beautiful weather we've been having have been drawing people out. I mean, not in crowds, but more walks around the block, more jogs, that type of thing in isolation. But even then, I've had my older patients, the adults, tell me that they have more symptoms probably because otherwise, at this time of the year, they'd be stuck in the office 40 hours a week. Oh, that is so true. Joanne, thanks so much for joining us this morning. My pleasure. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, there's a variety of technology that is helping us out in the fight against the spread of COVID-19. For instance, video conferencing. It is allowing many people to work from their home more comfortably. You've got 3D printers that are being pressed into service to create much-needed medical equipment. Now, Nikki Reitmeyer shares with us yet another way that technology has been adapted to provide assistance during the pandemic. Technology is rising to the challenge of helping us combat the spread of COVID-19 in the most ingenious ways. Take, for example, a problem facing medical professionals at the Mayo Clinic in Florida. How could they move COVID-19 tests from one side of their campus to the other while minimizing human contact and maximizing physical distancing? The answer? Autonomous vehicles. Four vehicles created by the company Beep have been moving COVID-19 tests since March 30th. Beep is an autonomous mobility solutions provider based here in the state of Florida. And we, in essence, are deploying these autonomous vehicles in these controlled speed, multi-passenger use cases to provide what's called that first mile, last mile mode of transportation using this most advanced autonomous technology. That's Beep CEO, Joe Moy. So, how does it work? Well, the vehicles start at a drive-through testing site where healthcare professionals are testing people for COVID-19. The vehicle itself looks like a small blue van. A worker takes a cooler full of tests, she puts it into the autonomous vehicle, and off it goes, transporting the samples to the processing laboratory. Around the corner, down the street, it drives all the way to the other side of the Mayo Clinic campus, where it's greeted by another healthcare professional who removes the cooler and then restocks it with an empty one. The vehicle once again departs, taking its cargo back to where it started, the drive-through testing site. And back and forth it goes for the rest of the day from the drive-through testing site to the processing laboratory and back again. Kent Thielen is a doctor and he's the CEO of the Mayo Clinic in Florida. He said, quote, Artificial intelligence enables us to protect staff from exposure to this contagious virus by using cutting-edge autonomous vehicle technology and frees up staff time that can be dedicated to direct treatment and care for patients. Game-changing as it relates to the use of these technologies for various purposes. For the future, it's certainly, I think, a real eye-opening opportunity for us to repurpose these technologies in time of need. Autonomous vehicles just another way that technology is aiding in the fight against COVID-19. For 980 CKNW, I'm Nikki Reitmeyer.
And thank you very much for that, Nikki. Oh, and here's another kind of cool way that technology is helping us during this pandemic. There's this Canadian company that they've developed an app that would automatically identify those who have been in contact with a person who tests positive for COVID-19. It's essentially contract tracing with an app. A message sent to your phone would tell you that you have potentially been exposed and then will ask you to self-isolate. So we've reached out to the makers of this app. They'll be on the show tomorrow to explain more. I know there's privacy concerns with this app as well. So the question is, would you even would you sign up for something like that at this point? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi parents have had a really tough go of it the last few weeks. Also, the challenge now with spring break being over of what kind of learning to help your children adapt to. Parents have been very active online and talking about this and individual school boards are all dealing with this in their own way. We thought we would check in with one of the biggest to see how they're doing. Joining us now is the school board superintendent for Vancouver, Suzanne Hoffman. Suzanne, thank you for being here. Thank you, Simi. Good morning. Uh, Could you explain to us exactly what's going on with the VSB in reaching out to parents? How has this transition to online learning been? Thank you. We have now turned our heads to what does the continuation of learning look like for students within the VSB. And certainly there are many pathways that it can take. Online learning is one part. The distribution of materials would be another part. Um, And we're working through that transition. There's um, there's bumps along the way, but certainly we are committed to implementing the very best that we can to support families during this time. So do you know of how many kids are learning online at this point? Like, where are you at in that process? Certainly for our primary children, kindergarten to grade three, we're looking more at providing packages of resources. And then in grades four to seven, where we can, looking at online. And certainly for our secondary schools, Um, online learning would be another feature that we would really look to use um, with our students. Is there a a timeline, Suzanne, about when this might all be up and running? It should be underway now. We've asked teachers to reach out to families, find out what they have, what they need, and how we can best support them. And I'm seeing now that some of the work is starting to go out. We have online resources on our website, um, but certainly that should be up and running now or in progress. And what about the students and the families who maybe don't have the technology required to keep up with all this? That's certainly something we're very live to. We've been taking inventories with our families to see who does not have access to educational resources. And yesterday we started distributing technology to, uh, to families, and it will continue today and probably into next week. So we've done that inventory, and we're supporting them with technology. So does that mean tablets, computers, whatever they may need? Yeah, iPads, Exactly. Um, and the second part of that, Simi, is also then looking at access to Wi-Fi, which is another part of that puzzle, and we're working on solutions in that regard, too. Yeah, what, what about those families who may not have that access? Um, we know of resources that we can um, align with them, align them with, and we're looking to support them in accessing the Wi-Fi resources that they need. Now, Suzanne, how rigid is this going to be? Because I know I've, I've been hearing and seeing from some parents out there that they just feel like at this point, with all the other stressors that are going on, they may not have the ability or the willingness to just to dive into this and, and really be able to do everything that might be required. It's a stressful time. So how rigid is the system? Is there flexibility to allow people to you know, be a little easier on some families? Yeah, short answer. 
Absolutely. We are very live to the amount of anxiety and ambiguity that are with our families right now as we support them. Um, and as I said, there's no one size fits all. But certainly, depending on the grade and the age of the child, um, we're looking at multiple ways to support families. And that partnership between families and with schools is hugely important. Right. So you're saying it's really in that discussion between individual schools and teachers, they can figure out but this might be too much for this family. Right. And it varies from child to child, grade to grade, school to school, teacher to teacher. Um, But again, we're diligently working and um, all hands on deck in making it happen in the best way we can, given the times that we're in. And we're acknowledging that it will take time to get it right. It's not going to be a flip of the switch. I was reading as well that over on Vancouver Island, the Victoria School Board right now is providing, you know, thousands of meals for kids every week. And I would imagine in Vancouver, there's also the concern about the kids who aren't getting that hot lunch program. Is something being done for them? We're currently feeding 2,000 children a day through our meals program. So those that previously received food are continuing to have the option uh, to have meals. And in our schools, students are picking it up every day with the health and safety guidelines in place. Wow, that's quite an endeavor. Is that at every school or wherever they can pick it up? Uh, There are uh, about 50 sites that that's currently happening in um, across the Vancouver School District. And that was in place the Monday after spring break officially ended. So at this point, do you have an idea, Suzanne, of how many teachers are working kind of from home and how many are in the classroom or in the buildings? At this point in time, um, we have not put the expectation that you have to be at school. Certainly some are working in school with health and safety measures in place and social distancing. But many teachers right now are um, working from home and providing families and children with the resources that they need to be successful in the ongoing learning journey. Is there a a message that you would like to put out there from the Vancouver School Board to families and children? Hang in there. Um, We're working on it. This is a journey. Um, It won't be perfect. Um, But we need to remember that the kids are our focus and supporting them through these times is what matters most. Their health and safety, their well-being, and their learning. School matters, but let's do this together, and let's work thoughtfully and calmly um, to support them. Well, Suzanne, thank you so much for the update. You're welcome. Thanks for your time. I appreciate that. That's Suzanne Hoffman, the superintendent of the Vancouver School Board, letting us know how hard they're working, just like every other district out there right now. And I had been seeing on social media the last few days, uh, there are parents out there who are saying, listen, we can't, we can't do this. This is just one more thing that we can't add right now to our huge things, a, a list of things that we are coping with at home. And as Suzanne Hoffman just pointed out, they're very understanding of that. It's up to the teacher, have that discussion. Some parents are opting out. Some, of course, want to keep their kids busy. Whatever the case is, it there sounds like being very flexible. If you're a parent who would like to share your story with me, please do. Simi at cknw.com. Uh, interesting to note, many school boards also still feeding kids out there. Vancouver School Board, 2,000 kids a day. They are still making meals available to those children to make sure that they are still being fed out there. Victoria School Board doing the same thing. Thousands of meals every week being provided to kids. This is Mornings with Simi. 
Oh, yes, we know. Tough times right now, and it is easy to get down and feeling a little depressed about it. But we are also looking ahead that there will be good times down the road. And that's what this next story is about. You may be seeing a lot of boarded up storefronts all over the lower mainland. I know I am on my drive to work in downtown Vancouver. There are many boarded up stores, you know, all over the place. And you think, wow, that's a lot of plywood that they had to use to do it. Well, if you want a silver lining, let's think about what happens eventually when those stores reopen and that plywood comes down. Well, that's why we're talking to our next guest. It's Dennis Coots, the CEO of Habitat for Humanity in Greater Vancouver. Hi, Dennis. Good morning, Sammy. How are you? I am good, thank you. So what do you want us to think about with all this plywood? Well, first of all, I want to give a big shout out to our friends Justin Elton and his team over there at Ten Star because this is actually his uh, creativity. And uh, we're appreciative of the fact that all of that lumber that's being used in the plywood is reusable through Habitat for Humanity Restores. And that was his thought of how to give back while everybody's sitting at home wondering what to do next. Okay, so you're, they're putting up flyers then on these storefronts and they're asking them to what, donate that wood? Yes, exactly. So Habitat for Humanity, we have a social enterprise called Restores. We have four of them in Vancouver and we will accept that uh, plywood. Happily, we'll pick it up and bring it back into the restores and we'll reuse it. We'll sell it in the stores and the proceeds of that stores helps to build fam- houses for uh, our partner families. Okay. So well, it's a really, really good cause and a good use for the uh, plywood after the fact. No, that's a great cause and a, a great use for that plywood because unfortunately, on the downside of things, there's a lot of it being used right now, isn't there? There is a lot of it, and it's, uh, it's very sad, and it's unprecedented times for every small business. It's kind of sad, but like you said in the opening, it is a bit of a bright spot that we can do some good with this, and we can do some social good, which uh, I'm really happy that the community is kind of doing that and thinking that direction, uh, and it's certainly going to be helpful for many of our families. We, too, are public-facing business that have closed our restores temporarily, but we're looking forward to getting all this material, getting back out to the public and continuing on with our work in brighter days. And what's it like for Habitat for Humanity right now, Dennis? We've heard of lots of different charitable organizations that are struggling. How about you guys? Well, I think we're in the same category as many nonprofits and charities. We're struggling. We've, uh, the, the total amount of revenue has dropped off to zero for us. Uh, the social enterprise restore pays the cost of our society. And uh, with zero income coming in from that uh, public-facing business, we're, we're struggling for sure. Uh, although we have kept a, a skeleton staff on there to maintain our supply chain management uh, by picking up donations from commercial donors. And uh, that's still going on behind the scenes. So we're anticipating when everybody does get back to work, we'll have a lot of inventory and be able to put uh, that product out at really, really good prices for the public. So Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get us back up and running and uh, be a good source of uh, product for all of these businesses that are wanting what to do with it. So we are looking for brighter days and we are looking to yes. serve our families uh, to our restore. And uh, we have online shopping, which we've done. We moved our product on to, from uh, in-store shopping to online shopping, and that's available on our website, habitatgv.ca. That's another way to get through this for us. Okay. And so if people do want to donate that plywood, is there a number to call? Is there is that the same website they should go to? Yeah, the easiest way to do that, Simi, would be habitatgv.ca. There are a bunch of links there. You can click on Restore and arrange a pickup, and we'll come and pick it up curbside. 
Great. Uh, also, you can click on Donate for those that are able to donate. We all accept those through our secure portal. And uh, you can do online shopping from the same link, habitatgv.ca. All right. Sounds good. Dennis, thank you. And listen, good luck with this. Well, thanks very much. And uh, keep up the good work of keep keeping us all uh, in the news and keeping us with bright stories like this. Well, we do, we do like the bright stories. Thank you, Dennis. That is Dennis Coates. He's the CEO of Greater Vancouver's Habitat for Humanity. He's giving the shout out to Justin Elton, who's the president of a local events company called Ten Star. It's Justin's idea. He came up with the idea of donating the plywood that is currently being used to board up so many storefronts. And he's putting up flyers posted on those storefronts saying, listen, when, when this is all over and you're taking that plywood off and you know getting ready to get back into business, donate that plywood to Habitat for Humanity. They can resell it and therefore they can make money and they can continue doing the good work that they do. So if you're a business owner and you've been doing this, that is something for you to consider as well. If you've got other good stories that you think we can pass along and share with people, let me know. Send me at cknw.com.